care of. So a few years ago, while I was in Africa, I had the distinct privilege of going on a safari at Kruger National Park. Now, Kruger National Park is just an enormous place. It's about the size of, of Belgium or about the size of Wales. And so it's a national park where all types of animals, including the big five, are able to go and they're just able to run free and be in their natural habitat and do their do. So, so it's like a top 10 place in the world to be able to go on a safari. And I was privileged enough to be able to go. And so you get in this open air vehicle, right? Like this Land Rover and there's no walls on the side and you're kind of sitting up high and the driver's down low and he has a CB radio. And he's driving you and you know, you'll, you'll be driving, there'll be a, a giant African elephant like walk right in front of you and you realize this thing can just step on you and crush you. And you're just, you're just awestruck by what you behold. But you got this guy and he's on a CB radio and there's all these voices that are constantly coming in and they're coming in in an African language of some type that I'm unable to decipher. And then our driver on this particular day, he, he's driving, we're looking at this animal or whatever, and he's been such like just a chill dude, you know, like just, just a chill, like Johnny come lately, I mean, just, just got it going on, right? And all of a sudden he gets this call, this call and he turns into Del Earnhardt of the desert, you know? And he's got this Land Rover and we're not buckled in and we're bouncing through this thing, you know, and he's flying and dust is slinging and there's animals everywhere. And then suddenly he slams the brakes on all at once and he begins to stand up and he's got binoculars and, he, and then he just kind of stands and he begins to point. And 10 feet from us, on the, just on the side of the road, is a full mane male lion and he's laying there. Now, my first reaction was, that's incredible. It's incredible. And then my second reaction is, that's terrifying. It's terrifying. Like, you just have this realization, I'm nothing but a bony hamburger, you know? And he's gonna tear me apart limb by limb and he could do it in one swell food. But then I'm thinking, you know how you do it. I'm thinking these, these, these lions are used to people, you know? And so I, I thought I'm gonna comfort myself so that I can enjoy the experience. And I asked my driver, I said, well, do you guys ever have any trouble with the animals? Do you ever have any trouble like attacks or anything like that? He said, oh yeah, I had one last week. Guy got eaten by a lion. I thought, well, that's comforting. I mean, he just says it like it's so normal, you know? Totally normal. He's just eaten by a lion. But sit, you sit there and you, you're in the presence of an apex predator like that. And you're just, you're just aware of how vulnerable you are. You're aware of how exposed you are in perhaps a way that you've never been before. And that's a picture of what it means to live, isn't it? That's a picture of what it means to live. It's, it's like the older that you get and the more you grow and the more you live your life, what you become aware of is that around every corner, around every bend, there seems to be a lion there. Around every corner, there seems to be a, a lion lying on the edge of the road, seemingly in wait, ready to pounce upon you, ready to pounce upon your wife, ready to pounce upon your children and your family and to devour you limb by limb. In fact, this is how Peter described our enemy, the devil. He says he is like a roaring lion going to and fro, seeking those whom he may devour. And if we're honest, if we're honest, the way it feels to us is the same way it feels to be in the presence of an apex predator. We feel vulnerable. We feel vulnerable. We feel, we feel weak. We feel inadequate. We, we feel as though there is nothing that we can do to overcome the hardships and the difficulties that we know. But this morning, what we're going to see, 
What we're going to see is that Jesus came and he came to the cross not just to accomplish your salvation, not just to accomplish your reconciliation with God. Certainly he accomplished that. But instead, what Jesus came to accomplish is he came to accomplish the restoration and the reconciliation of all things so that there will be a new heaven and a new earth because of the victory of Jesus Christ and vulnerability will go away and conflict will be eliminated so that every one of us one day surely and truly and fully and ultimately will know peace. We will know peace. There will be no more trembling. There will be no more vulnerability. There will be no more fear. There will be no more lions lurking around the corner. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me now to Isaiah chapter 11? Isaiah chapter 11. I would say this is probably one of those passages that I've been wanting to preach for a long, long time and have never had the occasion. And so Today's the day. Today's the day. If you're with us, this is your first week with us this, this year. This, we're in the middle of something we call Advent, okay? Advent is a historical Christian season that comes around the time of, of December in which we celebrate the birth of Christ. And the word Advent, you're going to hear me maybe use that some. That, that's only the word, that means coming. It's the Latin word that means coming that we kind of use in the church. And Christ had two Advents. He had his first Advent when he was born to Mary and placed in a manger. And he will have a second Advent when there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And he will reign as the glorious king. So when you hear me use that word, that's what I mean. Would you stand with us as we read this passage together? Y'all, there's no more passage in the Bible more fun to read than this one, all right? So y'all just savor this for a second. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This was written 700 years before the birth. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. Isaiah is written during complex times. The people of God are divided into two kingdoms by the time we get to Isaiah. You have the northern kingdom of Israel and you have the southern kingdom of Judah where Jerusalem was. Judah is, uh, Isaiah is the prophet to Judah and Judah is this tiny little uh, country that becomes uh, afraid of what's happening around it. It's trying to carry forward the line of David and the heritage of David as, as the uh, great birthright of David. But Israel to the north, the northern kingdom, goes into an alliance at this time with Syria. 
And the king of Judah, Ahaz, becomes afraid that Israel is going to invade with their new alliance with Syria and they're going to overtake him and they're going to overthrow him and they're going to establish a king of their own. He's afraid that they're going to come in and they're going to end the reign of the line of David that was rooted all the way into the covenant that God had made with David, that someone from his household would rule over Israel forever. And so Ahaz realizes that he's got to take action. He realizes he's got to take action. And so what Ahaz decides he's going to do is he's going to go and he's going to align himself with one that's far greater than Syria. He's going to go and he's going to find the mightiest military in all of the world, the strongest nation among all the nations, the empire of Assyria. And his idea is, is that if I can have an alliance with Assyria, no one can come against us. No one will be able to stop us. But God sends his prophet Isaiah and he sends his prophet Isaiah to Ahaz to warn him not to enter into the alliance with Assyria. In fact, he says through uh, Isaiah to Ahaz, he says, if you will just trust me, if you will just depend upon me, if you will just follow me, no nation will be able to rise up against you. No nation will be able to strike you down. Just trust me, I, the Lord, you are my people and I am your king and I will strike down your opposers and I will strike down any enemy that comes against you. I will see to it that you are preserved and that you are protected and that you will prosper. In fact, he goes to Ahaz and he says this, imagine God coming to you and saying this, okay, through his prophet. He says, just tell me which sign you want to see. I'm not even going to tell you what the sign's going to be. You tell me what sign will convince you that you can trust me and I will send that sign. But Ahaz does what we often do. Ahaz camouflages his unfaithfulness as piety. You know what we often do? We often say, well, well, God gave us common sense. So obviously I'm not supposed to go there. I'm not supposed to do that. I know what God would have me to do, but I, but I don't want to test God and, and back God into a corner and, and make it as though he has to do what I think he ought to do. That's what we do. And that's what Ahaz does. He says, I couldn't possibly test the Lord in that way. I couldn't possibly demand that the Lord give me a sign. No, no, no. I'm going to enter into this alliance because I know that's what the Lord would have me as the king of Judah to do. And he sees his unfaithfulness. The Lord sees Ahaz's unfaithfulness. He sees his unwillingness to trust in him. He sees his unwillingness to uh, submit to his word and to his demand. And so what the Lord decides is that if it is by Assyria that Ahaz believes that he will be saved, it is by Assyria through which the Lord will judge the tribe of Judah and he will cut them down at the root. And so we come here into a time of judgment. We come in Isaiah to a time in which the people of God are being rebuked by their prophet, rebuked by their God. They're being led down the plank of God's judgment by their very own king, the one who was to lead them to God himself. And there's this groaning in the book of Isaiah this aching in the book of Isaiah, this aching for a greater king, this aching for the return of David, this aching that a king would lead them unto God, this aching that there would be a king that would lead them into prosperity, this, this aching that there would be a greater king that would come. And that's where Isaiah 11 comes. That there is judgment to come, but there is a greater king yet to come. There is a greater kingdom to be established Judgment is coming, but the story won't finish there. 
And so Isaiah 11 gives us, gives us a description of this coming king. The first part of the description that we see is who he'll be, who he'll be, who this king will be. Verse one says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now to really grasp what's happened, you need to know how this has all been set up in the book of Isaiah, how this has all been laid out. God had promised to be the deliverer of his people. He had promised Ahab and Judah that he would deliver them and yet they had rebuked him. And so he says, I'm going to wield Assyria against you like an ax. You think Assyria will be your salvation. Assyria will be your condemnation. And so he says in Isaiah chapter six that they will be reduced to a stump. They will be reduced to that which is dying and decaying. In Isaiah chapter 10, right before we get to our passage this morning, you have Assyria there and Assyria has been uh, successful. It, it's looking into the future and seeing the success of Assyria against God's people. And they're pounding their chest and they're saying, who can rise up against a nation as great as ours? Who can defeat an empire as strong as ours? Who can defeat a king as great as ours? Who can defeat an army as difficult as ours? Who can come against one so great and is filled with pomp? and arrogance and cockiness. And so God looks to the Assyrians and he says, who is greater? Who is greater? The ax or the one who wields the ax? Who is greater? The one who is the ax or the one who wields the ax? And so he closes chapter 10 with these words, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels, speaking of Assyria with terrifying power. The great height will be honed down and the lofty brought low. He will cut the thickets of the forest with an ax and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Do you see the picture here? Do you see the picture? The promised land, this is Canaan that we're talking about. A land that flows with milk and honey, a land that God promised to give to his people and in which he would prosper his people. A land that would, was filled with grapes that had to be carried on poles between giants when Israel got there. And God is going to reduce it to an ocean of stumps the stumps of Israel and the stumps of Judah and the stumps of Assyria. What once was a thriving forest, what once was a thriving landscape now will be filled with the stench of decay. And so he writes 11.1. And so he writes Isaiah 11.1 into the midst of this desolate, stump-ridden land. He writes, and there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Do you hear the grace there? Do you hear the hope there? Do, do you hear the joy that is provoked in the people of God there? Out of death will come life. Out of decay will come new growth. Out of winter will come spring. Out of hopelessness will spring hope. Out of the cross will come salvation. Out of death, out of death will the king rise in victory. The nation that is to be laid waste is the very nation that God will hold up and reestablish with a greater king and greater prosperity and greater protection to greater glory. Now he says from the stump of Jesse. Now, what, what is, where does Jesse come from? What, what is the name Jesse? Some of you know, some of you, you don't know, and that's okay. Jesse is the patriarch of the royal family. 
Jesse is the patriarch of the royal family. Jesse is David's dad. So, so Jesse, rec, rec, uh, Jesse represents the line, the covenant, the promise that God has established with his king, with David, that there would be one that would sit upon his throne and rule his people unto prosperity and conquest forever. And so we see that. And you know who Ahaz was? Ahaz was in the line of Jesse. Ahaz was in the line of Jesse, the current king that is leading them into destruction. It appears that the promise is unraveling. It, it appears as though the covenant that God has made with his people is being reversed. God had said there would be one from the line of Jesse that would lead his people into prosperity. Instead, there is one from the line of Jesse that is leading his people into destruction. God had said there would be one from the line of Jesse that would lead them unto glorifying God. Instead, there is one from the line of Jesse that is leading them away from God to rebel against God so that God's hand will come against them. And so there's a twofold promise. There's a twofold promise that David will return to his throne and that his throne will be reduced to a stump. That it will be a stump, but from that stump will come new life. From that stump, a shoot will come and that shoot will bear fruit so that the promise is kept, so that the covenant is proven rock solid, so that David is able, the greater David, to return to his throne and establish his throne and establish the kingdom that will never end. So there's this plot twist, right? And then, and then, you may have missed this, there's another plot twist. Read verse 10 with me, read verse 10. And you'll see that verse 10 very much parallels verse one. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the people. The root of Jesse. Do you see the difference though? It's interesting, isn't it? Verse one, it's the shoot of Jesse. Verse 10, it is the root of Jesse. So in verse one, he's a shoot that comes from the stump. Verse 10, he's the root that precedes the stump. Verse one, he is the new life springing forth from the stump. Verse 10, he is the source of life from the beginning of the stump. Come on, y'all. Are y'all seeing that? He was the root and he was the shoot. Do you see this? That this king, this king will both precede Jesse and succeed Jesse. That he establishes the line of Jesse and then he carries forth the line of Jesse. He is the creator of Jesse and he is the son of Jesse. Isaiah is written 700 years before there will be a baby laid in hay in a manger. 700 years 700 years before there are wise men, 700 years before there is the song of the angels, 700 years before there is the fear of Herod, 700 years. And yet, and yet, and yet this baby will be born after Jesse. You see, Jesus is eternal yet born. Jesus is eternal yet born. Jesus made the virgin to whom he would be born. Jesus could take the waters that he would walk on and he can hold them in the hollows of his hand. He would, the word that became flesh and was rejected by his people. And yet he was at the very same time, the one who fashioned his own people in his own image for his own glory. See, there's not many kings in the world you can relate to, are there? I, I've watched The Crown on Netflix and I'm like, who are these people? Like, what kind of life is this? I watched Downton Abbey too, you know? 
And like I'm seeing these people live in these monstrosities and I'm like, man, can you even fathom living like that? Like they're not relatable to you and me, you know? They don't know what it's like to drive a used truck, you know? They don't know what it's like to say, honey, let's just, let's just make it by on the groceries we have left until the first of the month, you know? Yeah, to go ahead and cook those pintos that have been in there for two years. <laughs> but our king can relate to us. He knows your temptations. He knows your struggles. He's been tempted by prosperity just like you are. He's been betrayed by friends just the way that you've been betrayed by friends. He's had people that he loves die just like you have had people that you love die. He experienced the death of his father, almost everyone believes, at a young age. He knows what it's like to be hungry and he knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to lay down his head and have no roof over him. He knows what it's like to go to bed and to be hungry. He knows what it's like to, to want one thing for your life and have God yet will another and for him to say, oh God, not my will, but your will be done. He knows. He can relate to you. He can relate to your betrayal. He can relate to your pain. He can relate to your sorrow. He can relate to your struggles. He can relate to your temptations. He is a king that you can relate to. And though he can relate to us, common people, though he can relate to you, a common man, you shouldn't think for a second that he is a common king. He is not a common king. That though he can relate to your struggles, it should not in any way diminish in your mind his authority as his sovereign. It should not in any way diminish in your mind his strength as the Almighty. It should not diminish in any, in any way your understanding of his transcendence and his righteousness and his holiness and his purity. But what you should recognize is that you have a king that you can relate to and you have a king you can run to. You have a king that knows your struggle and you have a king that can overcome it. You have a king that knows your pain and you have a king that by the stripes of his own back can make you well. You have a king that knows the price and the penalty of your sin and in fact took that sin upon himself that you might walk in victory over your sin, that you might be reconciled perfectly to the Father. Oh yeah, yeah, you have a king that you can relate to and you have a king that you can run to, a refuge, a strong tower in your life. The question the question before God's people that day and the question before God's people this day is will you run to Assyria or will you run to the Lord? Will you run to the wisdom of man or will you run to the fear of the Lord? Will you take refuge in the arms of a man or will you take refuge in the arms of the Lord? Will you take refuge in a greater job and in your security financially? Or will you trust in the Lord? Will you go where the Lord calls and where the Lord sends and trust in the word of the Lord? Or will you trust in your own logic and your own common sense? Will you run to Assyria and ask them to defend you? Or will you bow before the throne of your risen king and say, Jesus, wherever you lead, I will follow. Wherever you go, I will go. Whatever you want from me, I will do. Will you run to Assyria or will you run to your king? Because church, you have a king that you can relate to and a king you can run to. The second description that we see of the coming king is how he'll rule. 
how he'll rule. It says uh, in verse two, it says, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are things that are, are necessary for a king to be great, aren't they? These, these are necessary attributes that must describe a king if he is to rule and he is to rule well. A few weeks ago, Megan and I were riding through Fort McClellan. And I can remember as a kid going through Fort McClellan and seeing people on the rifle range and seeing the Burger King up and hopping and the commissary, commissary uh, parking lot filled. And I, I, can, I can remember seeing, having to stop the car and watching troops run in formation over and just seeing it as like a bustling city within a city, right? As we were going through the other day, it's just sad. You see this, the, the paint on the stucco peeling off the old fire station. You see what were once just beautifully architected buildings just beginning to collapse and they're just dilapidated. And it's just like ruins and relics. In Isaiah's day, this is how Judah must have felt. This is how Judah must have felt. Judah had as its heritage Solomon and David and all of their splendor and all of their glory. They had been there and, and watched as great buildings were built, the palace and the temple. They had been there as the Lord had prospered them and increased the footprint of his own kingdom and the footprint of his own empire. They had been there as God had given Solomon such wealth, such affluence, such power and influence that there is none greater in all of the history of the world, no greater greater wealth and no greater wisdom than him. And here they are, a small, tiny southern shell of themselves on the verge and brink of disaster, waiting for their, their own kindred, the Israelites, to come and invade them and to take them captive. You can imagine the question that they're asking in that day is what made great kings great? What's the difference in the kings that they had then versus the kings they once had? What's the difference between Ahaz and David? What's the difference between Ahaz and Solomon? How do they return to their former glory? And they would have misunderstood it and we often misunderstand it. We often think that the difference between David and Ahaz is that David had the courage to face Goliath. We often think that the difference between Solomon and Ahaz is that Solomon was, was wise and had the intellect and was able to strategize in a way militarily and, and uh, administratively that Ahaz was incapable of. But we missed a step. Yes, David was courageous as a warrior. Yes, David was great as a conqueror. Yes, Solomon was wise and Solomon was an administrator and a, and a good ruler, but they had the spirit of the Lord, you see. David is described as the king upon whom the spirit of the Lord rested. He was not like Saul who ascended, had the spirit and then the spirit departed. No, David had the spirit of the Lord that rested upon him. Solomon didn't get his wisdom because of his intellect or his IQ. He asked and wisdom came from above. It inhabited him through the spirit of the Lord that rested upon him. And as mighty as David was, as courageous as David was, as wise as Solomon was, there was one coming that was more courageous. There, there was one coming that was far wiser. There is one coming. John the Baptist described Jesus in John chapter three as the one who would receive the spirit without measure. 
that the greater David would be courageous without measure. That, that the greater David would have wisdom without measure. That the greater David would have, would have prowess and the ability to rule wisely and rule effectively and conquer without measure. That no one would be able to come against him. No one would be able to thwart him. No one would be able to slow him down. No one would be able to confuse him or deceive him. No one. That he would have the spirit of the Lord without measure so that he would have wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we think of David, what do we think of? We think of that great description, that compliment that was paid to David that we've never heard paid to another man. That he was a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And as much as that was true, what do we also know about David? Though a man after God's own heart, he was also a man after his own appetites that he fell in unfaithfulness and he fell in wickedness and he sinned with Bathsheba and murdered Uriah. But there is one coming who would not find his pleasure in his appetites. There is one coming that would not find his pleasure in his sexual partner. There is one coming that would not find his pleasure in his own reputation and so have to murder people to preserve it. No, no, there is one coming and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. That is, he shall actually be a man after God's own heart. To live after God's heart is to live for God's pleasure according to God's will for God's glory. To live for God's pleasure according to God's will for God's glory. And this is how this greater David was to rule. He was going to find his joy, his pleasure, his delight in the awesome, hair-raising, bone-shaking fear of the Lord. He would love God's glory more than his own glory. He would love God's name more than his own name. He would treasure God's reputation above his own reputation. He wouldn't stake his claim in the approval ratings of his people. He would stake his claim in his standing before the Almighty. He wouldn't stake his, his, his joy on whether or not his reputation was moving up and ascending. Instead, he would stake his joy on his submission to the will of the Father so that he was able to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in, in heaven. Ahaz was nothing like that. Ahaz saw the king to the north and he trembled. Ahaz heard of the partnership with Syria and he trembled. Ahaz thought of the might of the Assyrian empire and he trembled. But this new king that's coming, this new king that's coming, he's gonna face down Goliath himself and he will not flinch. He's going to go and he's going to face down hell itself. He's going to face down the grave itself. He's going to face down your sin itself. He's going to face down his cross itself. He's going to be nailed to the cross of Calvary for my sin and for your sin. And he will not even utter a word. Instead, instead he will say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. 
That his delight will not be in making you feel good or me feel good. It will not be in ascending to some imaginary and golden temporary throne. And his pleasure will be found in doing the will of his father and pleasing his father. And if he can please his father, then he will live as a pleased man himself. You see, through our king, we can enjoy the fear of God apart from the fear of man. You hear that? I've worded that very specifically. Through our king, we can enjoy, enjoy the fear of God apart from the fear of man. We don't think often about enjoying the fear of God, but let me tell you, church, there is freedom in the fear of God. You notice what it says? It says in verse four, but with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. In verse three, just before that, he says, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. He shall decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, he will not try to go by what his eyes say, what men are trying to influence and manipulate him into doing. Instead, he will rule with equity. He will rule with fairness. He will rule according to the to the ways of the Lord and he will deal rightly with the meek and rightly with the poor. He will make sure that they are cared with, not catering to the rich like most politicians. Instead, he will rule with actual holiness and righteousness and faithfulness, so much so that they will be like belts. They will be like belts. That is his, his character, his integrity, his righteousness, his obedience, his faithfulness will be outside, outward, displaying the very character of this coming king. The way they would use these, these belts is they would take their robes as they were going into battle and they would tuck them. They would tuck them under their belt so that they could run, so that, the, the, so that the long robes would not slow them down. And the picture is of Jesus running after obedience to the Father, running after his faithfulness, running after in pursuit of what he would have for him to do, running after, even if it costs him, even if it takes him against the, against the current of culture, against mainstream society, even if it takes him all the way up to a place in which they will spit upon him and lash him and crucify him. He is there and he is going to run after it because displayed for everyone to see will not be his flamboyance. It will not be his charisma. It will be his faithfulness, his righteousness. See, there's a lack of moral courage in our day, isn't there? And there's a lack of moral courage in our day because there's a lack of the fear of God. There's a lack of moral courage because there's a lack of fear of God. And through our King, we'll be able to enjoy that. You see, if you wanna follow after Christ, if you wanna go where God is calling you to go, if you wanna be obedient unto the Lord, if you wanna not depend on Assyria, but depend upon the Lord, you won't be able to do that without trembling. You're gonna tremble. Because you won't be able to see around the corners and you won't be able to see around the bends and you won't really know exactly how it is you're gonna be delivered. Your only promise is that you will be delivered. You won't know exactly how you're going to be provided for. The only promise is that you will be provided for. You won't know how you will be protected. You will only know that you will be protected. 
And so the question is, will you follow after your king? Will you run after your king? Will you run? He has been faithful already. You can't be faithful. He has been faithful. You can't be righteous. He has been righteous. But will you put on his belt of righteousness, his belt of faithfulness and run after him, trembling though you may be and go and live according to the will of God, even though the will of God is terrifying to you. Even though the will of God may call you to change your relationships. Even though the will of God may cause you to leave your job. Even though the will of God may cause people that you know and love at school to look down upon you. Even though the will of God may cause you to not be able to have the normal college experience. Even though the will of God may call you unto singleness. Are you willing to tremble in the presence of God and say, God, what I enjoy is pleasing you, not myself. What I enjoy is advancing your name and not my own name. Because if you fear the Lord, if you fear the Lord, there's no space in your life for a fear of men. There's no space in your life to fear about how many likes you get on Facebook. There's no space in your life for your performance evaluation to determine your value and worth as a person. You were given unto the Lord. You were given unto the Lord. And so you can live with great courage and great freedom and great pleasure and great joy living in equity among all men. And that brings us to the final description that we'll see and it's what he'll accomplish. What he'll accomplish Verse nine, I think verse nine is especially powerful. I mean, really all of six through 10, I mean, like if that doesn't get you excited, like they used to say like, if that doesn't set you on fire, your wood's wet. Isn't that kind of what it feels like, right? Verse nine says, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. In Genesis chapter one, God creates man and he creates man in his own image. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. And you know why he says that? Because as the image bearers of God, as the reflectors of God's glory, when he tells us to be fruitful and multiply, what he is saying is he's saying, fill this whole creation with my glory. Fill this whole creation with knowledge of me. And what we see in Isaiah 11 is the fulfillment of that commission. The fulfillment of that command, that from the beginning, the goal has been to fill the creation, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the Lord. But the day has come when the king returns and all peoples of all nations, of all tribes will say, we know the Lord, the Lord Almighty, worthy is the one who has been slain. And so it is the fulfillment of Genesis 1 being fully realized. And he says, when that happens, when that happens, there will be total peace. There will be total peace. That is, there won't be the threat of hurt anymore. No one will come onto my holy mountain. No one will come against my people. No one will come against my king and hurt them. Y'all, that's enough to go home on. That's enough to go home on. That there's a day coming. There's a day coming when when hurt isn't even possible anymore. There is a day coming. There is a day coming in which conflict is not possible anymore. There is a day coming in which you will turn the corner and a lion won't be waiting on you anymore. Think of the description that he gives. There will be peace where there was conflict. 
The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Leopards and goats will play together. Bears and cows are going to share a mill of grass together. That is, no one's going to look at the color of your skin and make a judgment. No one's going to think about who your daddy was or what you used to do or who you used to be and make a judgment. You're not going to fear when you go into an airport that there might be a bomb there. There's not going to be any kind of phobias. You'll be able to live in total freedom knowing that in every place there once was conflict or the threat of conflict. Now peace has come and peace rules this day and tomorrow and every day thereafter. There will be security where there was vulnerability. There will be security where there was vulnerability. Do you see the picture? He says that the babies are gonna take cobras and hold them up like rattles. That, that, that babies are gonna stick their hand down in the hole of a rattlesnake and not be bitten. That the most vulnerable among us will be the safest among us. The most vulnerable among us will not even have to have concern for their well-being. That is, it will be the end of domestic violence and abuse. Dying children will stop dying. Childhood cancer will be wiped away. There will be no special needs to overcome. There will be no Down syndrome to diagnose. The elderly will have glorified bodies and the poor will live in mansions. There will be goodness everywhere there was badness. There will be goodness everywhere there was badness for the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord. Out of every headline of every newspaper worldwide will say one thing and one thing only God is good again today. God is good again today. Every news station will come and there will be breaking news. More of God's glory discovered today. More of God's splendor seen today. More of God's wealth enjoyed today. Every place there was bad news will now be filled with the good news that Christ has come and Christ will save every groan, every moan, every hardship will be filled on the lips. A new song, a new song that says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. God Almighty. Tsunamis won't hit islands. Tornadoes won't end lines, in lives. Babies will never die. Churches will never split. Friendships will never end. Good will overcome bad. Love will overcome hate. Joy will overcome depression. Glory will overcome the curse. And as much bad as we know today, we will know that much more good on that day. On that day. And so today, today, we live between the two advents. Christ has come and he has saved and he has promised and Christ is coming and we are certain. And so we wait, we wait. We wait through our struggles. We wait through our hurt. We wait through our temptation. We wait through our sin. We wait through our unfaithfulness. We make all of our hope all of our hope on the shoot and the root, on the King that is coming, on the Christ that is eternal. And we run, we run to our King and we run after our King. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. 
I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.